All right, Luke 17, verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he, Jesus, was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And he entered a village. He was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance. They stood at a distance for obvious reasons, if you guys are familiar with the leprosy of that day. It was uh, something that essentially made you both ceremonially and physically unclean to be around people. So, so the life of leprosy was a lonely life. Uh, it was an embarrassing life. It was a shameful life. It was a life where you would have to leave and abandon your family and live essentially alone um, until, until you pass. So uh, they stood at a distance and they cry out, lift, verse 13, lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. You can imagine they're just at the end of their rope, right? There's just nothing else that they can know to look to besides Jesus. In verse 14, when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourself to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. The, the Mosaic law stated that if you were healed, that... Um, you were immediately to go to the priest, the high priest, and he was to confirm that healing. And if it was uh, a confirmed healing, then at that point, your life could resume. You could go back to being a normal person. You could go and re-engage relationship with your family and all of these things. So they cry out to Jesus, and he calls back, go and, and go to the, to the high priest, and on their way, they're made clean. But it says, now you see here the point of the story, it says in verse 15, then one of them, one out of the, the, the ten lepers, when he saw that he was healed, he turned around, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, he was a Samaritan. And then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise, rise. Go your way, your faith has made you well. Now, we give these other nine lepers a hard time, you know, like, man, they were just so unthankful. But I'll be honest, I mean, I think what the nine lepers that didn't stop did was pretty expected of human nature. I mean, Jesus told them to go. They were just doing what Jesus told them to do. He gave them this gift of healing, and then they went on their way. They went on their way as quick. I can imagine their immediate impulse as a human would be to get to the high priest as fast as possible to get the miracle confirmed so I can get back to my normal life. So these nine men are, are just doing what would be expected of a human being to do. But one of them, a Samaritan of all people, a Samaritan has this immediate thought. He goes, wait a minute. That's an amazing gift. This healing is an amazing gift, but how much better is the source of the gift than the gift itself? It's like he had this, this click moment in his thought where he's like, wait, the healing is amazing, but that power just came from that person that just, that just spoke, and all of a sudden my leprosy is gone. And he turns around and he goes and he falls at the feet of Christ, and he begins praising him and thanking him. And Jesus' response to this one out of the ten lepers is super interesting. His response is, you have been made well. And you read that and you think, wait a minute, they were all made well. All ten of them were all healed. So why is only one of them made well? And the answer is this, and the answer is the crux of our teaching this morning, and that is that true wholeness comes not through the gift, but acknowledging the gift giver. 
Okay, true wholeness comes not when you go, wow, thank you, God, for this gift, and now I'm going to go live out and enjoy the gift. True wholeness comes when you turn around, you about face, and you go and you say, wait, 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 I want the source of the gift. I want to give, give praise and adoration to the source of that gift that I just got. That's what Jesus is saying. So, so 10 lepers were healed, but one was made whole. So my compulsion, my, my, my imperative for you this morning, I'll just give it away, is I want you to walk out of here not just as blessed individuals, and believe it or not, right now you are. You are blessed individuals, but whole individuals. People that not only, not only have gifts from God, but acknowledge the source of those gifts. So we're in a series right now called Access Points. I think this is our fourth teaching. We typically teach through books of the Bible, uh, but we finished up the book of Acts, so we're taking a short break to do a topical and this series called Access Points, uh, we're basically talking about spiritual maturity. We're talking about what it looks like as Christians to grow up spiritually. And, and we've discussed in the past, just a little bit of review, we discussed that when God saved you, he gave you newness of life. Am I too loud? I'm running sound for myself, so you guys have to tell me. Am I too loud? Am I too quiet? Are we good? Be honest? Good? Okay. Um, start yelling. I might be too loud. Anyways. Uh, so God created new life, right? And when he created new life, this spiritual life, he created it for the purpose of growing up. Just like when you have a child, your, your purpose for that child is not for it to stay a child. Your purpose for that child is to grow up into maturity where they can live on their own. They can feed themselves and ultimately someday have their own family. And so there's a progression to maturity. And so as a Christian, you've been given this call um, to step into Christian maturity, to, to have your spiritual life mature and, and to grow. Now, we could go, well, but that's all God's problem. Right? We could say, well, that's all God's job. He's the one that matures me. And, and you would be right in a sense to say that. But biblically, it, it's clear that we also have a part to play in our own spiritual maturity. Would you agree? We have a part to play. You can, you can stay in spiritual diapers for a long time. Okay, you could choose to do that, or you could choose to grow up. You can choose to grow in maturity. And what we're spending this six, seven-week series on is basically talking about how we grow up. How do we grow up spiritually? How do we grow up and mature? Uh, and the way that we've kind of framed that is basically to say that we grow uh, by becoming more aware of God's grace. So let me give you a definition of what spiritual maturity is. Okay, spiritual maturity is not like becoming like a Jedi Knight Christian where you walk around and you command the power of the Spirit and, and you just always know the right thing to say and you always have the wise word and you're just you're so self-controlled. I mean, there's, there, that, that's actually not the definition, I think, of spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity is growing up to realize your own need and dependence for the grace of God. Okay? That's why brokenness matures you crazy fast, right? Because you, you grow up to realize, wow, I really am broken. I really need God's grace. So we talked about, in, in past teachings, we've talked about God's grace is like a reservoir. And, and there's, a, there's an eternal amount of God's saving grace, self, uh, sanctifying grace. And, and these spiritual disciplines that we're talking about, they're access points into that grace, into that reservoir of grace. So we've talked about meditation. We've talked about prayer. And, and each of those were framed as a way for us to access the sanctifying grace of God. Sanctifying just means growth, to become like the person of Christ, okay? So this is basically what we're doing. And, and this morning, we're going to talk about the discipline of worship, because worship is one of the access points into growing in grace. It's one of the access points into growing in grace. So that's just a little bit of review, a little bit of background. Um, this morning, as we talk about worship, by the way, we're going to have a time of worship at the end, so I hope that you guys will, will stick around for that. Um, but here's kind of the outline for this morning. We're just going to do two things, OK? 
okay? First, we're going to talk, again, we're going to give a theological framework of worship, okay? A theological framework of worship, and then I want to give a practical framework of worship. Theological framework of worship and a practical framework. Can you handle that? Are you guys, are you guys with me? Are you good? Okay. Thanks, Matt. Somebody, somebody's with me. I appreciate that. Okay, so theological framework of worship. First of all, let's define worship. When you say the word worship, the first thing that usually pops into someone's head is music, right? That's usually what we equate worship with. But that's actually not what worship is. It's an expression of worship. But worship itself is something much deeper. And I want, I want you guys to walk out of here this morning having a more robust understanding of what worship actually is. Okay, so worship is simply this. Worship is the act of responding, declaring, or ascribing value to the source of that value. Okay, let me give you an example. When you go to a new restaurant, um, I was having a conversation with my brother the other day, and he was raving about this new restaurant uh, in Medford. It was like uh, Grape and Vine, or something. It was the one across from the movie theater. Anyways, he was just like, oh, you, have you tried it yet? I was like, no, I haven't tried it. Oh, we went there on a date. Oh, you got to try the deep fried Oreos. And, oh, man, I had this, you know, I had this thing, and I had that thing. And I'm like, oh, oh, cool, cool, cool. What he's doing in that moment is he's worshiping. I'm not saying he's an idolater, okay? Let me just explain. I'm saying he's worshiping. What he's doing is he's, he's found something valuable and he wants to ascribe the value of that thing back to the source. That was a good experience. That was good food. I want to tell people and evangelize, essentially. I want to declare the value of that thing that I just, I just found. That's worship. Worship is ascribing the value to a source uh, of, of a thing. Okay, so we all do it. We're all programmed as humans to worship. We all worship. We either worship something uh, or we demonize something. That's, that's what we do as humans. Uh, Isaac Newton's third law okay, is basically this. For every reaction, there's an equal and opposite reaction. Okay, so you understand that? If you push on a wall, it pushes you back. Uh, if you throw a ball at the ground, it bounces up. Okay, in the same way, when, when something is glorious and something is amazing and something is, uh, is, is powerful, our instant reaction is to respond back to it. Okay, if you don't believe me, just get on social media. Okay, wow, what a beautiful sunset. What's the first thing you want to do when you see a beautiful sunset? You want to take a picture of it. You want to send it to someone and you want to ascribe value. Look at this. It's beautiful. You, you're praising it. You're, you're worshiping it. Um, that's what we do. It's, it's human nature. If you look at the history of mankind, we, we've always done this. You look at the Greek pantheon. The Greek pantheon was essentially man inventing a god that they could worship for every single facet of human life. So fertility, there was a god for fertility. Travel, there was a god for travel. War, there was a god for war. Um, money, there's a god for money. I mean, you, you name it, the Greeks invented a god for it in their pantheon. It's called polytheism. And, and what that proves is that the human desire at its core is to ascribe worship to something for everything. I want a kid, so we need a God that I can worship in order to get a kid. And then when we get the kid, what do we do? We worship that God for that kid. That's human nature at its most basic form. Now the question, so, so the question is not if you worship. The question is what you worship. You are, we are all worshipers. We are. We, we spend our entire day worshiping, ascribing value. But the question is, what do we worship? And this is where the bad news comes in in our understanding of the Bible. The bad, bad news is, is that humanity has a worship disorder. It's not that we don't worship. We do. We have a worship disorder. Our worship, uh, our worship is broken. It's broken. So while our intuitive desire is to worship, 
it's intact, our ability to worship correctly is irreparably broken. Okay? Romans 1 23, or pardon me, 1 21 makes this super clear. Paul says, For although they knew God, they being the Gentiles, humanity, for although humans knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened, and look what they did. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, creeping things. That's what we call idolatry. Idolatry is when we take something that God made, created thing, and we make it a creator. So we worship it as though it's the source of glory. I say, wow, this is a great Apple product. Oh, Apple product. And we, we bow down and we worship Apple product instead of realizing that Apple product was made out of things that God made. That the person that invented the Apple product actually was a, given a brain by God. That the idea for creative, creativity in the first place was created by God. So idolatry is ascribing value to anything less than God himself. And Romans makes that clear in its indictment of man that the, the core sin of humans is that we take the creator or we take the creation and we worship it as the creator. At the base of most of your issues as a human being is idolatry. Did you know that? Putting too much value on things that simply cannot hold up that value. Your kids. We worship our kids. It's one of the oldest forms of idolatry in humanity. We worship our kids. And then our kids grow up and they they feel this pressure to be worthy of your praise. It was the craziest thing. I, I, was, I was out hiking yesterday with a friend, and he was just complimenting me. It was, very, it was very encouraging at first. He says, Sam, I'm just so thankful for you, man. I've never had a pastor that I was as close to with you, and you've just done so much to help me and my wife, and I'm just so thankful. And, I'm, and, and then he just kind of kept going. He's like, oh, you're just such a great guy, and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, yeah. Like, and at first I was like, oh, that's encouraging. And then as he kept going, I went, why do I feel so anxious all of a sudden? It's like instantly anxiety. I'm like, I should be encouraged by this. And I realized it's because I, I felt like instantly like I had to live up to his false idea of who I am. <laughs> You're such a great guy. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm not. And now I feel like this burden, this stress, like I have to be a great guy because you think I'm a great guy. Oh, that's stressful. When you tell your kids that they are the point of your life, you're my everything. Don't ever tell your kids that. You're my everything. Your kids will grow up feeling the weight and the burden of having to be your everything. And they can't be. When you tell your wife, oh, you're just, you're my everything. You're the center of my universe. Don't ever do that. So your poor wife is going to have to live up to that. <laughs> you're crushing them. The reason idolatry is so painful is because nothing can bear the weight of praise besides God. Nothing is worthy, ultimately, of your praise. Now, I'm not saying if you go to a restaurant and you put it on your Instagram and say that was good, that you're an idolater. I think God wants us to delight in his creation. But worship is when we go, ah, but I know the source of that food. I know the source of my beautiful child. I know the source of my marriage. I know the source of the relationship that I'm valuing. And I'm giving highest praise to the source of that. That's true worship. The problem with humanity is we have a worship disorder. It's not that we don't worship. It's that we worship wrongly. Now, humanity was not just created to worship. We were created to worship God. We were created to worship God and God alone. Him and him alone. Listen to this. The difference between true worship and false worship is entirely based on whether the object of your worship is actually worthy of that praise. That's the difference. 
That's the difference. False worship ultimately becomes toxic to your joy. It's like plugging in an electric device to the wrong power. You ever done that? It works for a minute and then it fries your device. <laughs> that's, that's basically what idolatry is. And at its core, now listen to this, at its core, sin is ultimately a worship issue. Did you know that? John Piper puts it this way. He says, what is sin? Sin is the glory of God not honored. It is the holiness of God not reverenced. It's the greatness of God not admired. The power of God not praised. The truth of God not sought. The wisdom of God not esteemed. The beauty of God not treasured. The goodness of God not savored. The faithfulness of God not trusted. The commandments of God not obeyed. The justice of God not respected. The wrath of God not feared. The grace of God not cherished. The presence of God not prized. And the person of God not loved. That is sin. Every sin in your life can be traced back to a worship problem. At its very deepest core, you have made too much of something, and that something has led ultimately to sin. So God creates man, and man falls and fails and, and falls into this worship disorder. And then God takes Abraham. And he calls Abraham to be ultimately the figurehead of a nation called Israel, right? And he designed Israel ultimately to be a worshiping nation. We call it the theocracy. Theo meaning God. It's the, it's the government ruled directly by God. It's the best um, example, the best uh, illustration we have of human beings being ultimately ruled by God directly. Okay? So God ruled Israel, and he set Israel up to be a worshiping people. So everything that they did, worship was at the nucleus, at the center of life. So if you look at a map and you see how the tribes were meant to pitch their tents um, in a particular way in the wilderness, it was all facing what was at the center. And what was at the center? Anybody? What was at the center? The tabernacle. And what was the tabernacle? It was where the presence of God lived. So all of Israel was centered, was meant to be centered on worship and ascribing all worth and all value and all authority to the person of God. That was the person, or that was the, the point. All of their feasts, all of their sacrifices, all of their culture was centered on worshiping God. It was built into their calendar. It was meant to be something that they constantly did as people. Their, their national flourishing and religious faithfulness were intrinsically connected Okay, what I mean by that is that there was no separation of church and state. Okay, the state was run by God. That was the point of Israel. And for that reason, idolatry was the ultimate downfall of Israel. Because they constantly worshipped something that could not bear up under their own praise. They constantly worshipped idols. And the point of Israel was to model the centrality that worship should have in our lives. That everything in our life should be directed to him ultimately. And secondly, to show that worship doesn't come from godly administration or godly law. Okay, some of you guys need to hear that right now. Uh, true worship doesn't come from having godly government. Did you know that? True, if you don't believe me, look at Israel. Israel was literally run by God and they still were in sin. They still had idolatry. So we can make our government as moral as we possibly can, and we should try to. We, should make, we can make it as Christian as we possibly can, but at the end of the day, true worship does not come by having the right laws in place and the right policies in place and the right administration in place. True worship comes when the heart is changed. The true worship comes when the heart finds ultimate delight in God over anything else. 
Now think about this for a minute. For God to demand anything short of all of your worship is actually unloving. Have you ever thought about that? If God lets you worship something other than him, he's not a very loving father. If I let my five-year-old go up and touch a stove and I just sit there and watch, is that loving? I mean, I guess you could say maybe it is because he'll learn, whatever. But it's not loving. It's, I don't want that for him. God knows that he is the ultimate source of joy. There's nothing that could satisfy you more than him. That the only way you'll ever truly be happy is if all of your affection is set and satisfied on him. And so when he sees us fooling around with, with, with other things and worshiping other things, our marriage, our kids, our job, our career, our body, or whatever, he goes, and he goes like, that's going to make you sick. His highest good for you is himself. Does that make sense? His highest good for you is that you would be fully satisfied in him. And so worship is at the very core of our problem as humanity, but it's also the very core of the solution. It's at the very core of the solution. What's the, what's the answer to our worship problem? Okay, the answer to our worship problem. Let me give you the good news about, about our worship problem. Because we, we know that giving God all praise is, is, after all, it's far beyond our ability to accomplish. So three quick points on the good news regarding our worship problem, okay? Number one, the gospel is not like man-made religions, okay? So here's what a man-made religion looks like, okay? A man-made religion says, worship always precedes favor. So if I ascribe value to God, then he will show favor to me. That's religion. Okay, that's religion. So in every false religion, you'll find a similar, um, you'll find a similar uh, makeup to that religion. And that is, I give God glory and God gives me stuff. Or I give God glory and God gives me salvation. Or I give God glory and God gives me favor. It's contractual. But it starts and is activated by my worship to God. Okay, Christianity is completely the opposite. Christianity says God gives you favor. God shows you grace, and because of that grace, you worship. It starts with not your expression of thankfulness to him. It starts with his expression of grace to you, and then is reciprocated by your worship. It's so important to understand that. If I could just worship God more, he would love me more. If I could just worship, if I could just be more moral, if I could just get myself together, God would bless me more. No, no, no. That is religion. The gospel is that God has shown you favor, and so worship comes as a result. And you cannot worship God enough to pay for everything that he spent on you. Don't even try. You don't worship to pay it back. You worship because you can't help it. I think of Isaiah in the Old Testament. He beheld the Lord of glory and God's favor on him. And what did he do? He fell flat on his face. I'm unclean. I think about Peter. When Peter saw Jesus uh, doing miraculous things like telling him to throw the, the net on the other side of the boat, what was Peter's instant reaction? I'm unworthy. You know who I am, Jesus? I'm unworthy. He worshiped him. He gave him praise. I think about it's, it's, it's all throughout the Old Testament. There's, there's a response to God's goodness and God's glory. That's what worship is. It starts with him. He first loved us. It's important, okay? The second thing that's good news about our, our worship disorder problem is that positionally, Christ has lived the worshipful life that you couldn't. Christ was the Israel that Israel couldn't be, and he's simply given you that. 
And thirdly, you need to hear this. The Spirit of God is at the helm of refining and reorienting your worship. God is is working this out. And God's, make no mistake, God's ultimate goal for humanity and all of creation is to bring us back into a place of worship. If you read the end of the book, which I encourage you to, Revelation 21, what you find is a worship service. You find all of creation, all of humanity, after the great war and everything happens, you find all of humanity, all of creation, back in the place of worship to God. And Christ is in the center. That's where we're all headed. So that means to become spiritually mature is to become worshipers to a greater degree. Okay, now that was all the theological stuff. You guys still awake? You good? So here's the question. How do we grow as worshipers? If you can agree with me that we have a worship disorder, if you can agree with me that your highest joy and highest good is to set your affection fully on God and God alone, then the immediate question becomes, how do we do that? How do we grow as people that worship God? So I want to give you a practical framework of worship, and I want to give you three engines, three engines of praise, three things that are going to help you grow as a worshiper of God and will ultimately help your joy. Okay, now you'll notice none of these have to do with music, by the way. Okay, worship music uh, should embody all three of these things. Good worship music should embody all three of these things. So, so three engines of praise, three engines of worship that are going to help you become a greater worship. Number one is, and write it down, number one, remembrance. Remembrance. I want to encourage you guys this week to walk in remembrance, remembering God's past graces. So this really cool thing's been happening. My wife, because um, she's amazing, she's just been telling all these stories to our kids about our life, things that I've forgotten. She's telling them about how we met, and she's telling them about when she was a kid, and she's telling them about what it was like when they were babies, and she's just telling stories. And, and I'm just kind of sitting there listening, and as she's telling these stories, my heart is just like coming alive. It's like, it's like coming to life as she's doing that, and I'm going, what is going on with that? And I realize it's because she's remembering the past graces of God in her life. I'm like, wow, Lord, you've been so faithful. And I just forgot all this stuff. You know, God created his people, Israel. He created uh, that culture to do exactly that. They were an oral culture. They were meant to pass down truth by speaking it out loud. So you would have grown up, if you were a young Jewish boy or girl, you would have grown up hearing your parents tell the stories of God's faithfulness, of Yahweh's faithfulness to his people. That's how the culture was. It was stitched into their life. Covenant remembrance is stitched in to, uh, the, it's supposed to be stitched into the life of God's people. There's things like, if you remember the book of Joshua, when they crossed over uh, the, uh, the Jordan, right? And, and, and God was trying to, to, to lead them into the promised land. Do you remember what he had them do right after they crossed the Jordan? To take 12 stones and put them in the middle of the river. And then take 12 stones and put them on the side of the river. Okay, and the 12 stones are symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel, so on and so forth. And, and they said, so that for years to come, when, when you see this pile of stones on the side of the river, you remember God's faithfulness that not only did he part the Red Sea, but he parted the Jordan, right? His faithfulness. And you might ask, well, what's the point of putting them in the middle of the river? When are you going to see those? But the reality is, is that, that God knew that there were going to come times of drought. There were going to come times where the water level would be so low that nothing would grow and there would be no food and there would be massive struggle. And it would be in those times that those 12 stones in the middle of the river would be visible. Those 12 stones, the Ebenezer, would be visible and it would remind them of God's past faithfulness. Now, some of you guys are going through hard stuff, man. 
I just want to encourage you. Part of worship is remembering, speaking, calling up the, the past graces of God. You know how you build trust with somebody? I tell this to people whenever trust has been broken in a relationship. Like whenever trust has been broken, you have to, to, to build trust over lots and lots of time with lots and lots of consistency, showing that your character is a certain way. Okay, so that someone can trust that you're going to handle a certain situation a certain way because they've seen your character in other areas. The way that we increase our faith in God is to constantly remember and remind ourselves of the faithfulness of God's character, that he always comes through. Maybe not in the way that you want him to, in the way that you think he should, but he always comes through. You need to remember those things. That's why Jesus, when he sat with his disciples, he said, hey, do this in what? Remembrance of me, because he knew we were going to forget. He knew we were going to forget his faithfulness. He said, this thing I'm doing on the cross right now, remember it. Remember it all the time. Don't forget my faithfulness, he would say. That's why the Jews had the Passover feast every year. Okay. Every year, because they would have forgotten the faithfulness of God to deliver his people. We have to remember. We have to remember. Max Lucado, I actually love this quote. He said, gratitude gets us through the hard stuff. To reflect on your blessings is to rehearse God's accomplishments. To rehearse God's accomplishments is to discover his heart. To discover his heart is to discover not just good gifts, but the good giver. I love that. Rehearsing his accomplishments. We should be people that brag about our God, brag about his faithfulness, brag about his past graces in our life. In Revelation 12, 1, it says, they have conquered, the believers, they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. There is power in speaking the realities of God's faithfulness over our lives. And you guys have no clue just how faithful God has probably been in your life unless you start remembering it and start speaking of it. So, number one, the first engine of praise I want to encourage you guys on this week is remembrance. Okay, remember. Number two is thankfulness. Thankfulness. I know this seems like obvious stuff, but man, I don't know about you guys uh, with the world just crazy right now. I need fundamentals. I just need the basics because it's the basics that I, I think really grow me. Okay, I mean, we could talk about, you know, Christophanies and uh, crazy theology. But this is what I need right now. I need basics, okay? So here's another way to praise God, thankfulness. And now thankfulness. So if remembrance is about remembering past graces, thankfulness is about looking at present graces, the present graces of God in your life. Now, there's a biblical mandate that, I don't know, maybe you guys have picked up on it as you've read the Bible. The biblical mandate is that we as believers are to be unceasingly thankful. Have you ever heard that? It's a tough one. Unceasingly thankful. Listen, in all situations, in every situation. If you don't believe me, here's a couple passages. Ephesians 5, 18. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking together, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, songs of the Spirit. Sing, make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God. Okay? Always giving thanks to God, the Father. For everything in the name. Everything. Okay? Always giving thanks to God for everything. Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. That means that even when we're petitioning, even when we're praying, like we talked about last week, we're to be praying with thankfulness in our hearts. 
First Thessalonians 5.16, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. Okay? I don't know about you guys, that's, that's hard. <laughs> How in the world am I supposed to worship in all circumstances? And I'm not just talking about, oh, I didn't get a parking spot. I'm talking about, man, I just got a cancer diagnosis. We have a family in this town that just lost their one-year-old baby. Can you imagine? How do you thank God? And you lose a one-year-old baby. The scripture seems to command it as though it's something we should be able to obtain as believers. And I think the answer is thankfulness. Rick Warren, he said, happy moments, praise God. Difficult moments, seek God. Quiet moments, worship God. Painful moments, trust God. But in every moment, thank God. There is a time for everything, but there is always, it is always time to be thankful. Always, essentially. So how do we give thanks in all things? This is the, the question of thankfulness, okay? I want you to acknowledge five things really quick. Okay, acknowledge five things. Number one, acknowledge that thankfulness is a verb, not a noun. Thankfulness is a verb, not a noun. It's a choice, it's not a feeling. Tim Keller said, it's one thing to be grateful, it's another to give thanks. Gratitude is what you feel, thanksgiving is what you do. You understand the difference? Thankfulness is not, I feel thankful. Thankfulness is, I'm choosing to thank God. Johnny Erickson Tata, which you probably are familiar with her situation, as a matter of fact, she says, God isn't asking you to be thankful. He's asking you to give thanks. There's a big difference. One response involves emotions and the other choices, your decisions about a situation, your intent, your step of faith. Okay, so thankfulness is a verb. It's not a noun. It's, just, it's not just something you feel. Secondly, acknowledge that or acknowledge daily that the unchanging heavenly riches of Christ are what you are ultimately thankful for. Let me throw a few references at you. Psalm 7, 17. I will give thanks to the Lord. Why? Because of his righteousness. I will sing the praises of the name of the Lord most high. You'll notice in the Psalms that their praise, their thankfulness, is not directed at their situation, which is changing. Their praise and their adoration is, is directed to the unchanging nature of God. Psalm 100, verse 4, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For, in other words, the reason we can be thankful, for the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. So the praise is not directed at my situation. It's directed to his nature. Colossians 2.6, so then just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. So the thankfulness comes from the, the, uh, the amount that we are rooted and built up in what Christ has done and who Christ is. And one more, Colossians 3.15, let the peace of Christ Rule in your heart, since as members of one body you were called to peace. Be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with wisdom through psalms, hymns, songs of the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The point is that our thanks is directed at the unchanging eternal realities that transcend our immediate situation. That's where true thankfulness comes from. True thankfulness in every situation comes from acknowledging that every good gift is ultimately from him. 
Every good gift. James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. C.H. Spurgeon said, those do, those do not glorify God as God who do not trace all their goods, all their good things to God. Elizabeth Elliot, for one who has made Thanksgiving the habit of his life, the morning prayer will be, Lord, what will you give me today to offer back to you? What will you give me today to offer back to you? I love that. Max Lucado, the, great, the grateful heart is like a magnet sweeping over the day, collecting reasons for gratitude. Guys, I, I just can't state this enough. This is medicine for your soul right now. The anxiety that you're feeling, the sin that you're struggling with, the depression that you're having, almost all of that is traced to a worship disorder. You have put too much emphasis on something. Your feelings of shortcoming as a father, maybe, or as a mother, you think that you should be able to bear up under that. You were never meant to carry that. If you place that worship onto God, it will relieve that pain. It relieves that pressure. As simplistic as it sounds, speaking words of thanks ultimately, speaking words of thanks ultimately brings health and life into our world. Okay, entitlement is the sickness of our generation, amen? Entitlement is what is killing us. And what is the antidote to entitlement? Thankfulness. Entitlement says, I deserve more than I have. Okay, we were raised to think this way. I should have free this, free this, free this, free this. I should have the same, I should have a nice house as my parents, I should drive a brand new car, I shouldn't have health problems, I shouldn't have relationship problems. I should have these things. Why? Because we've been told that we should have these things. But in reality, if you look at it from a different angle, you go, actually, I don't deserve anything. Everything that I have is a gift. Thankfulness comes as a result. Entitlement is what is killing you, and the antidote to entitlement is worship. It's thankfulness. God, thank you that I have anything. Thank you that I have anything. So, the three engines of praise, three engines of, of, of worship. First of all, remembrance. Second of all, thankfulness. And third of all, imagination. You might not have been expecting that. <laughs> but I would like to put it out to you that one of the ways that we become worshipers, not only looking at past grace and present grace, but looking at future grace, and part of looking at future grace takes this little thing that God built into you. It's called imagination. Okay, it's called imagination. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, But as it, is written, as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. In other words, we cannot imagine enough how big what God has in store for you in his future grace. It's not all about you, but you get to be part of it. I actually think that true worship comes not only in remembering and not only in acknowledging what's presently good, but in anticipating what future realities God has in store. So as kids, can you throw that slide up really quick, Seth? As kids, we're born with this sense of wonder and anticipation. So this is my first daughter. So this is six years ago, I guess. My first daughter, Myla, and we went on this coast trip. And I don't know if you can tell just how small she is there, but she's She's pretty little. I don't know. What was she, like, four months or five months? I don't know. She's pretty little. Um, and she's looking at the ocean for the first time. She's never seen it. 
And to her, that might as well be outer space, <laughs> right? I mean, it's, it's massive. When you're a child, you're born with this idea that everything could be amazing. This, just this, this deep sense of optimism when you're a kid. Do you guys remember that? <laughs> Has it been so long that you don't, you don't remember? You're born with this deep sense of optimism. Oh, my life is going to be amazing, and everything's exciting, and everything's new, and everything's wonderful. And you're just, your imagination uh, allows you to fill in this idea of your future self that is just amazing. But we kind of look back at that, and we look at it as, an imma- we look at it as immaturity. Like, yeah, I was, I was immature. I didn't realize as a kid that life actually isn't like that. Life was going to be hard. I was going to have the hard decisions. So we think of maturing as growing out of imagination. We think of maturing as growing out of having this optimistic sense of the future. But what if, okay, what if, what if growing up in the Lord isn't about growing out of our imagination, but it's actually about growing into the imagination that we had when we were kids? But realizing that all of that true, all of that imagination is only fulfilled in what God can ultimately do in our future. Okay. What if Christian maturity is about re-engaging all of those feelings, all of those excitements, all of that elation, all of that anticipation that we had as a kid, re-engaging that and seeing that it's all gonna come because of him and what he's gonna do? If Christianity sounds boring to you, it's because you have heard it wrong. Okay? You've heard it wrong. Do you realize Christ is going to come back? He's going to eliminate all sin, all death. He's going to make a new heavens and a new earth, which means it'll be like this one, but way better. He's going to interface the heavens and the earth somehow where they're connected, and we are going to dwell forever in not corrupt bodies that will have way more capability, will explore, will work, will learn, will worship. It will be exciting. It will be interesting. If you think this creation is cool, the next one's going to be better, trust me. Our worship is dampened by our sense of realism, our sense that, well, life's just the way it is, okay? Yeah, in a sinful and broken world, yes, but as Christians, we should have childlike anticipation. We should look out over the future and be like, wow, what could God do? I mean, if he can make this universe, imagine the next one. Imagine what he's going to do to renovate this one. Imagine what new things he has in store for us. That stokes the worship and the praise of our hearts. That's what true worship is. G.K. Chesterton said, I would, I would maintain that thanks, thanks are the highest form of thought. And gratitude is happiness doubled by wonder. I love that. God gave us a creative mind that could imagine because he desired for that imagination to think on what he could possibly do in the future. So I would encourage you guys, let your minds wander on what God may have in store. Hold on to the eternal truths for now, but when you worship, think about all that God could do and all that God is because he's eternal. So three engines of praise, past, present, and future. I like John Piper gives this example. He says, when you think about worship like standing in the middle of a river, and as you're standing in the middle of a river, you can look behind you and you can see all the water that's passed by you. That's past grace. You can look down and see all the water that's around you. That's present grace. But you can look into the future. You can look ahead and see all the water that's coming your way. That's future grace. As Christians, we should be saturated with and focused on God's past, present, future grace in our lives. That's where praise and worship ultimately come. So I want to give you guys homework. Okay, and I just want you to put, put me to the test on this. Okay, The next time you're feeling anxious... 
the next time you're feeling depressed, the next time you're feeling frustrated, the next time you're feeling angry, any of these sinful compulsions that we have as human, I want you to stop and I want you to begin thanking God for everything he has done, everything he is doing, everything he will do, and I want you to do it out loud. I want you to do it out loud. I want you to declare the timeless truths, the realities of God's nature. Begin speaking things, and I guarantee it won't take away all of your problems, but they will shrink. That's what worship does. And if you guys ever had that experience, sometimes in, in a moment of music and worship where you're just describing value to God and all of your problems just seem to just all of a sudden be removed into the background. Thanks does that. Praise does that. Worship does that. Because God can handle all of our affection. He can handle, he can bear up under all of our worth. So may we just, may we not be those who just receive a gift from God. May we be that one leper who stops, turns around, and goes to the source of that joy, who gives thanks. And, and as a result of that, may we be, as Jesus said, may we, may we be made well, not just physically healed. My desire is that we would be a church that worships, man, a church that ascribes all value and praise to God, that we would enjoy life and creation, that we would, you know, talk about great restaurants and great this and great that, but that we would always end that with, man, God is a good creator. He is inventive. Imagine what he has in store, that he would get our highest praise, and that we would be people that are free from the bonds of expecting this life to satisfy us that we would set our kids free from the bonds of having to be our everything, that we would set our spouses free from the bonds of having to be our everything, that we would set ourselves free from the bonds of having to be what we th people may think that we are or what we even think we should be because our affections are so satisfied on him that we're free to live in that. Ravi Zacharias said, gratitude comes from the same word as freedom, gratis, free. Gratitude is the freeing expression of a free heart toward one who freely gave. If you want freedom in your life, worship God. It's what you were made to do. It is your intended purpose behind your design. And to do anything else is ultimately to steal from your own joy. Would you guys stand? We'll have the guys come back up. Lord, we just praise you right now. We just thank you, God, for you're worthy. You've been faithful. God, we want to sing praises to you because you're worthy. It's not about the songs, Lord. The songs are a vehicle of praise. But I just pray right now, God, that we would be overwhelmed with thankfulness. You have been so good to us. You are so good to us. You will be so good to us. Jesus, you said you go to prepare a place for us. You've considered us. You've loved us before the foundations of the earth. While we were yet in sin, Lord, you died for us. Who does that? God, you've chosen to share your glory with us. You've chosen and to, to love us enough to protect us from worshiping other things. Father, you're so good. It's all about you this morning. It's all about you. God, everything else is just anxiety. True peace comes when we're looking at you, God. So just pray we'd open our eyes. I pray we'd be that leper, Lord, that we'd turn around, we'd fall on our face, that we'd go to the source. 
We'd be like Peter. He says, where else could we go? You have the words of eternal life. What else could we give value to? You're the only thing that can really, is really worth it. Lord, just fill our hearts this morning, we pray, as we lift up praises to you. In Jesus' name.